0: His blessings to us as a feast. Thou preparest, King James said, a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And I'm reminded of the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and said to him, even the crumbs, Lord, from your table are sufficient for me. Your banquet table is so lavish. Even the crumbs are enough to meet my deepest needs. It's a fine song that we uh, sing. It's an old one, and I'm glad we have learned it. Uh, I have received several comments, (laughs) happy most of them, asking me if I'm intending to work at all this summer. Two hours on Friday afternoon is about what I'm putting, no, that's not true, but um, we have had a lot of guest speakers this summer and it's been really good for us and I appreciate uh, having you be able to hear other men open God's word. Just for your information, I'll let you know. Uh, I plan to speak the rest of July, not the first Sunday in August, but I will then uh, from August 14th on the foreseeable future, I'll be speaking. So you can plan your vacations accordingly for whatever that means for you. Uh, One of the things I so much appreciate about our congregation is it's. Uh, uh, encouragement uh, towards uh, men and women who come who are involved in ministry or uh, serve uh, overseas in some uh, capacity. Uh, This is a a wonderfully warm, embracing, encouraging church. We have um, high hopes and great expectations for all the people that God brings across our path who love the gospel and want to speak the gospel. And I'm very encouraged uh, how you have uh, embraced and welcomed Jonathan Brubaker to our congregation this summer. And you have carefully listened and and carefully spoken to him as we seek to encourage him. And this morning, he's going to open God's word to us uh, today. So let us, the children of God, listen to the servant of God as he opens the word of God to us this morning.
1: Well-known Christian scholar and author, Howard Hendricks, often tells a story about a man named Walt and the life-changing influence he had on his life. I'd like to introduce our message this morning by sharing that story. Had it not been for Walt, I seriously doubt whether I would have ever become a follower of Jesus Christ. I came from a broken home My parents were separated before I was born, and neither one paid much attention to my spiritual condition. To put it bluntly, I could have lived, died, and gone to hell without anyone even bothering to care. But Walt cared. He was part of a tiny church in my neighborhood that developed a passion to affect its community for Christ. Walt's passion was to reach 9- and 10-year-old boys like me with the gospel. I'll never forget the Saturday morning I met him. I was sprawled out on a Philadelphia sidewalk playing marbles. Suddenly, someone was standing beside me. I looked up to see this gangly guy towering over me, all six, four of him. My mouth dropped open. Hey, son, how would you like to go to Sunday school? He said, That was an unfortunate question. In my mind, anything that had the word school in it had to be bad news. So I shook my head, no. But Walt was just getting started. How would you like to play marbles then? Now he was talking my language. Sure, I replied and quickly set up the game. As the best marble player on the block, I felt supremely confident I could whoop this challenger fairly easily. Would you believe he beat me in every single game? In fact, he captured every marble I had. But in the process, he captured my heart. I may have lost a game and a bit of pride that day, but I gained something infinitely more important. The friendship of a man who cared. A big man, an older man, a man who literally came down to my level by kneeling to play a game of marbles. From then on, wherever Walt was, that's where I wanted to be. Walt built into my life over the next several years in a way that marked me forever. He used to take me and the other boys in his Sunday school class hiking. I'll never forget those times. He did not have a healthy heart. And I'm sure we didn't do it any good running him all over the woods the way we did. But he didn't seem to mind because he cared. He was probably the first person in my life to show me unconditional love. He was also a model of faithfulness. I can't remember a time he ever showed up to his Sunday school class unprepared. Not that he was the most exciting teacher in the world. In fact, he had almost no training for that. Vocationally, he worked in the tool and die trade. But he was for real. And he found ways to involve us boys in the learning process. Walt incarnated Christ for me and not only me, but for 13 other boys in my neighborhood, nine of whom also came from broken homes. Remarkably, 11 of us went on to pursue careers as vocational Christian workers, which is ironic given the fact that Walt himself completed school only through the sixth grade. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Perhaps some of you know someone like Walt in your life. Someone who serves the Lord boldly and and courageously and passionately and faithfully with no intention of slowing down. However, my guess is that sadly, some of us do not. These people seem few and far between these days. I mean, what keeps a person like Walt going? Why can't I seem that motivated to serve, I oftentimes want to give up. This is too hard. I'm too tired. People aren't responding. I don't see any results. I'm too busy and frankly, I have better things to do. What's in it for me anyway? Is that the attitude you find yourself having when it comes to serving others for the gospel? I mean, don't we all have moments like that? I hope you can find encouragement from our message this morning. I trust that we can all learn from Paul's faithful example to the Corinthian believers. Let's read what he had to say. Our text for this morning is 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. If you have your Bibles with you today, please turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1-6. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 1144, I will be reading from the NIV. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This morning, I would like to share with you four reasons directly from this text that we must not lose heart as we serve in ministry. At this point, some of you may be tempted to tune out. Ministry is may not be a word that you often associate yourself with. Ministry? I'm a farmer. I'm not a minister. I'm a housewife. I'm not a minister. I work in an office complex all week, not a church. I'm going to school to become a doctor, or a lawyer, or an engineer, or a police officer. I'm not in the pulpit on Sundays, or at prayer group on Wednesdays, or raising support to go overseas. Ministry is not my calling in life. This message does not apply to me. Although you are right to acknowledge that we are not all called to full-time ministry, the reality is that all Christians are called to ministry. That is, we are called to serve others in response to what God has done for us. If you are a Christian, you are a minister, You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and not care about his mission to serve. I assure you, this message is for you this morning. The first reason that we must not lose heart in ministry is because ministry is a gift from God. Let's look again at verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Ministry is a task that God gives us out of his compassion. It is a gift gift given to us out of his kindness. It is not a chore. It is not a begrudging task. It is something we desire to do because God has given it to us as a blessing. Now, let me pause there for a second because already that might sound odd to some of you. And I can understand why. You see, this is totally radically countercultural. Ministry is a gift. It's hard to wrap our minds around, you you see, because our society often views service as a chore. Someone has to do it, but you don't want to have to be the one. Uh, Some even view it as punishment. You committed a crime so now the judge sentences you to do community service to make restitution. Go, go pick weeds for a few hours or, or paint a building or dig some holes. So in the Christian realm, maybe you did something you shouldn't have. So now you think God is, is judging you. You feel like you have to pay him back. So you sign up to help in the nursery. You show up on Wednesday nights to help at Awana. You don't want to be there but you have to make restitution. Is that how you view ministry? This view of ministry, this, this view of serving others is wrong. It is sinful, and we reject it this morning. As Christians, our view of serving others must be totally countercultural. This is a gift, not a begrudging task. This is an opportunity of a lifetime, not a chore. It is something to be cherished, something that we take great delight in. You mean, I get to serve the Lord? You mean, I get to serve others? When is the last time you cherished serving another? Perhaps this morning, your understanding of service and your attitude towards ministry need to change. I'll be the first to admit that this is a, a struggle for me, um, during my time at Moody, I've been required to serve in some type of ministry on a weekly basis as, as part of my educational experience. So I've worked as a tutor with uh, underprivileged inner city kids. I've worked with Campus Crusade for Christ uh, on another local university. I've been part of a launch, uh, launch team for a church plant that started a year and a half ago. And, and most recently, I've been leading weekly Bible studies at the Juvenile Detention Center through uh, Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. But see, I don't say that to toot my own horn, because if I'm going to be honest, I've probably spent more than half of my time in those ministries with a bad attitude, not wanting to be there. It has not been the highlight of my experience at Moody. I'm already tired and worn out from all the work I'm doing for school. And now I have to go step out of my comfort zone and do something I don't want to do. I mean, this most recent ministry, I've probably shared the gospel with close to 100 kids in that detention center. And to my knowledge, not one of them has made a commitment to Christ. It's hard to get excited about going there. Our fallen nature, our sinfulness, hinders us from viewing ministry rightly. Again, this is hard. This is this is difficult. Radically countercultural. You mean changing diapers and cleaning the church bathroom is an opportunity of a lifetime? Yeah. If it's done for the kingdom, if it's done for the Lord, then it certainly is. So we must keep going. There's no reason for faint-heartedness. When is the last time you were faint-hearted over a gift someone gave you? We need the Lord to transform our hearts on this issue because ministry is not about you or me or even the people we serve. It's about God. This is His initiative. He is in charge of it. He is sovereign over it. And in His kindness, He gives it to us as a gift. So we gladly keep going. The second reason that we must not lose heart in ministry is because we earn the respect, trust, and confidence of onlookers as we serve in ministry. People are attracted to our integrity as we serve. Let's look again at verse 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You see, God has placed Christians strategically as examples to the rest of the world. Remember, we are a city on a hill, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Doing the right thing matters, especially for the sake of those who are watching. Uh, Didn't you find the story of Walt attractive? Haven't you been drawn to the lives of other men and women who have served the Lord faithfully and with integrity? Honor, integrity, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, these are all attractive qualities. When non-believers see these qualities in believers, it pricks their conscience. They see your life and realize that's the way they were created to live also. So we should be encouraged to live lives of integrity as we serve, knowing that others are watching. What do we mean by integrity? I've heard it put this way, living rightly even when no one is looking. It's easy to cut corners today, isn't it? Especially when people trust you. It's easy to live deceitfully when you're in a position of authority. But we renounce that way of living. Furthermore, we do not twist people's arms. We do not lie to them or use trickery. We do not deceive, nor do we distort the Word of God. The word distort literally means watered down. It is a word used to describe wine merchants diluting their wines. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur, after all, I go to Moody. But I can imagine that for those who enjoy a glass of wine here and there, you want its purest form. No one wants the wine that's been watered down, the kind that is impure and does not have the fullness of flavor that it should. You want the purest form. So when it comes to serving others, we must offer them the purest form form of truth. We are not in the entertainment business trying to attract people with smoke machines and fancy lighting and and the best sound system and fruitless gimmicks. We do not people please changing the truth to suit others. We do not tweak the message in order to see our numbers and profits increase. Sadly, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this before. The televangelist who says that your life will be better if you become a Christian, that God will heal you and rid you of your debt if you would just have enough faith. Oh, and send in a check for $1,000. The tract that says all you need to do is pray a prayer and then you can go on living however you like. The author that says you can have your best life now as if Christianity is a means to living successfully on this earth. The pastor who says that hell does not refer to eternal conscious torment, but that all will be saved in the end. These statements, though portrayed as true, are contrary to Scripture. They are false. They are twisted. They are deceptive. They are distorted. Sure, they may sound appealing. They may be popular. They may bring a lot of worldly success to those who proclaim them, but they are not from God. They are from Satan, the father of lies, and they have no place in our ministry. Those who deceive and distort the truth are more concerned with numbers, more concerned with money and success and political correctness than they are faithfulness to God and His Word. They don't care about the gospel. And you see, the sad irony is if we've tricked people into believing the truth, we haven't really shared the truth at all. If there is any deception or distortion involved in what we say or how we say it, we've polluted the entire message. So our goal is not to deceive or to tell people what they want to hear. Rather, we must speak the truth Plainly, The opposite of deception and distortion is clarity. We speak the truth as it is laid out in Scripture. So, so when the Bible talks about election and predestination, we talk about election and predestination. When the Bible says homosexuality is sin, we say that homosexuality is sin. When the Bible says that God is a God of wrath, we say that God is a God of wrath. When the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, we say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. When the Bible says that hell is real and many people are going there, we say that hell is real and many people are going there. There's no reason for us to beat around the bush. Now you may notice that I've chosen only to reference controversial topics. To make my point, I do that because these are some of the topics that we tend to shy away from. Why? Because we've allowed culture to determine what we believe about these issues? Because we've been duped into thinking that some of these are gray areas? Really? Hell is a gray area? Have you read the Bible recently? Now, I don't say that arrogantly. When we speak the truth plainly, we must do so gently gently and in love, but we speak the truth nonetheless. Speak it plainly. Speak it clearly. This is what God's Word says. I'm reminded of last summer when I worked as a security officer at Six Flags Great America in my hometown of Gurnee, Illinois. Uh, So Six Flags has a lot of rules, and rightfully so. Uh, There needs to be rules or it would be total chaos. So on a daily basis, I would see someone breaking a rule. So my job as a security officer was to inform perpetrators of their infraction and either warn them or discipline them depending on the rule they had broken and how serious it was. I mean, we had to kick people out, it, you know. Not fun, but you got to do what you got to do. So just saying. I would say more than half of the perpetrators I talked to throughout the course of my summer, didn't like me telling them that they had broken the rules. They didn't like me telling them the truth. This is typical of humanity, isn't it? We hate being confronted with truth. Anyway, some would even try to argue with me about it to to the point where all I could say is, listen, I didn't write the rules... If you have a problem, you're going to have to take it up with the management. I'm just a messenger. It's the same thing with God's truth. People will not like it when you speak the truth plainly. They reject it. But you and I didn't write the rules. We didn't make up the truth. I didn't write the Bible. God did. And so if people have an issue, they need to take it up with the management. Now, I don't say that as a cop-out. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to just blame shift and like, oh well, uh, God said it, so yeah, I'm, I'm free. That's that's not my point. Ultimately, though, we must realize that people reject truth because they have an issue with God, not the messenger. If they reject the truth, they reject God, and they need to take it up with Him. So we shouldn't shy away from being faithful. Because we're afraid of people's responses. Who cares what people think about me? It's God's word. Of course, uh, speaking the truth plainly means we must know the truth. This task becomes difficult when we don't know what the scriptures say. I fear that that might be the problem in Christian culture today. Do we know the truth? Do we devote ourselves to studying the whole counsel of God? Do you know what the Scriptures say? We could avoid a lot of fruitless debates and arguments if we did. At this point you might say, well, I'm approaching ministry with integrity, I'm serving faithfully, and I'm speaking the truth as clear as I know how. I thought you said that others would be attracted to the Gospel through this lifestyle why then are people failing to come to Christ? A valid and relevant question, which we will address momentarily. The third reason we do not lose heart in ministry is because the results of ministry are not in our hands. Let's look again at verses 3 through beginning of 5. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves. So why are people failing to come to Christ? Because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, not allowing them to see the glorious light of the gospel. It's not that the gospel is ineffective, as some of the Corinthians argued. The reformer uh, John Calvin said it this way, The sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive its light. Rather, Satan has put a veil over the eyes of unbelievers. And I'm I'm not talking like a wedding veil, which you can see through partially. This is a blindfold. Unbelievers are totally blind to the truth. Uh, You remember, we read this morning from Ephesians 2, where it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people are blind. They cannot see. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's far brighter than anything else in this universe. But to those who can't see it, of course it's not good news. If you're following the text closely, you you may have noticed that um, Satan is referred to as the god of this age in this text. What does that mean? What we must understand, which perhaps we often fail to realize, is that Satan has a certain amount of power and authority over this present age. He has had this authority since the fall of man and will continue to exercise this authority until Jesus comes back to reign eternally. Although Satan has a, a certain amount of power and authority in this present age, We should not be discouraged or led to despair because of it. Yes, Satan is referred to as the god of this age, but that is in contrast to Jesus, who is the god of the eternal age. Satan's reign is temporary and limited. Jesus' reign is permanent and eternal. Jesus wins. This is not like Star Wars, where there are two equal opposite forces, good and evil, light side, dark side, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader. I had to... Uh, check Wikipedia for all that stuff. I don't. No, I'm just kidding. I know Star Wars. It's not like you have two sides both taking turns, you know, going at each other, and, and, and it shifts. Oh, the, the dark side's on top. Oh, now the light side. No, that, that's, there's not an uncertain outcome. Our outcome is certain. Jesus wins. Amen? Amen. Remember that when you feel discouraged. By a lack of results. In the meantime, Satan still continues to wage war. I read an explanation recently that helped me to better understand uh, Satan's work in this present age. For those of you who have been attending the God Who Is There study on Wednesday nights, you might remember this excerpt from D.A. Carson. After World War II, a Swiss theologian named Oscar Coleman used one of the turning points in the war to explain the work of Satan in this present age. He drew attention to what happened on D-Day, June 6, 1944. By this time, the Western allies had already cleaned out North Africa and had started pushing up the boot of Italy. The Russians were coming in from the steppes. They had already defended Stalingrad and they were pushing their way to and through Poland and other Eastern European countries. And now on D-Day, the Western allies landed on the beaches of Normandy, and in three days they dumped 1.1 million men and tons and tons of war material. There was a second Western Front. Anybody with half a brain in his head could see that the war was over. After all, in terms of energy, war material, the number of soldiers, and the way all of these lines and trajectories were converging, the war was over. Does that mean that Hitler said, oops, I miscalculated, and pleaded for peace? No. What came next was the Battle of the Bulge, where he almost made it right through to the coast of France, except he ran out of fuel. There followed the Battle of Berlin, which was one of the bloodiest of the entire war. So the war was not over yet. A year later, the war finally ended in Europe after the combatants had navigated this massive gap between D-Day and V-E-Day. Coleman says the experience of Christians is like that. The promised king came, that is our D-Day, the coming of Jesus Christ. And his cross and resurrection. After rising from the dead, Jesus declares, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king. But does that mean that Satan said, Oops, I miscalculated. I think I had better plead for peace? No. What it means is that you have some of the most, uh, some of the fiercest fighting left because Jesus has not yet defeated all of his enemies. Jesus reigns. All of God's sovereignty is mediated through King Jesus. The kingdom has dawned. The end is coming. The Christian V.E. day is coming, and there is no doubt who will be seen to be king on the last day. However, Satan is still the god of this age, and his last-ditch effort is to blind whomever he can There are supernatural forces at work that we cannot see or comprehend. So I don't give up in the face of resistance because we recognize that it is out of our hands. The results are not up to us. Now that doesn't give us license to be ignorant or foolish or careless or lazy. Some might say, well, if the results are in God's hands, why bother doing anything at all? After all, why should I preach to someone who's dead, who has a veil over his eyes? They'll never get it. You don't know that. You and I never know when God might open the eyes of an unbeliever. Just because the results are in God's hands doesn't mean we fold over, especially since it is through our gospel proclamation that he opens the eyes of unbelievers. Furthermore, we do not preach ourselves. Who are we? Since the results are in God's hands, we don't try to take things into our own hands and promote our own message as if we have a better one. We cannot rely on our own power to remove the veil. We preach the gospel. Whether the unbeliever is an atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Unitarian, homosexual, heterosexual, male, female, adult, or child, we preach the gospel. Because we never know when God might open their eyes to it. Which brings us to our final point. The fourth and final reason we do not lose heart in ministry is because Christ's glory is proclaimed through our message, through our ministry. Let's look at our last set of verses, 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what we have been commissioned to do. Proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. We do not lose heart because this is the most spectacular task that we could have. God's glory is pronounced through our ministry. This should not weigh us down. This is magnificent. We have been given the greatest message in the entire world, the most valuable thing you could ever tell someone. We are not merely offering positive thinking or, or just good works or a better life on earth or worldly comfort or health and wealth. No, we are offering something far greater, salvation through Jesus Christ. He is the light that shines in the darkness. And those who are in darkness... Desperately need that light. Remember when you and I were sinners walking in darkness? We offended an eternal God and we rightly deserved eternal punishment, separation from Him in hell. But He, in His grace and mercy, took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and He took it to the cross where He became our sin. Where the Father poured out His wrath upon Him, the wrath that sinners, that you and I right, rightfully deserved. Then He died and was buried in the ground. But it doesn't end there. He rose three days later, thus conquering death and conquering sin and conquering Satan. Then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And someday he's going to return and rule as king for all eternity. How is that not glorious, glorious news? Not even Facebook and smartphones and MacBooks and Harry Potter and the Miami Heat can compete with that. They don't come close. Losing my voice. We have the most glorious message in the entire universe. Because the God of glory has shown His light into our hearts He's given it to us. This is a gift. We did not earn this. If if nothing else I said today convinced you, the gospel is why we do not give up. We have it. We have the gospel. God has given it to us. That is why we do not lose heart. It's July, which means that it's cycling season. The Tour de France began earlier this month and runs through next Sunday. Um, As of yesterday, Frenchman Thomas Voeckler, at least I think that's how you pronounce it, was leading the pack through 14 stages. If he continues on his pace, he will win the 2011 Tour de France, which is by all means an incredible accomplishment. Anyone who is a serious athlete will will tell you how much time, dedication, energy, and sacrifice go into his or her individual sport. All the more blood, sweat, and tears must go into training for the Tour de France, the most intense cycling competition, if not the most intense competition uh, of any sporting events in the world. I mean, countless hours of repetition, 10 plus hours a day for months, loss of sleep, constant, excruciating bodily pain, disrupted eating habits, little time spent with family and friends, training year round, even on holidays. But the reward is great. It is worth it to those who compete. The winner leaves a legacy as one of the greatest athletes to ever live. What would the world look like if Christians, if you and I were as committed to our ministry as these athletes are to training for the Tour de France? Now, before that gets taken the wrong way, I'm not talking about the number of hours we spend, nor am I saying you should quit your job and start training for full-time ministry. That's not where I'm going with this. Nor do I suggest that the Tour de France or cycling or any other sports or hobbies that you may have are evil and we should abstain from them. No, sports are great. I'm an athlete myself. What I'm saying is, we have been given a task much more valuable than training for the Tour de France. We have been given a task much more valuable than any other task a task of eternal significance, a task of glory. A task that only we, as Christians, can complete. And and again, I'm, I'm not so much concerned about how much time that we spend doing it. We're not legalists. I'm concerned about our attitude. How we view it. You see, sadly, when it comes to ministry, we lose heart. We get discouraged and we just give up. Much sooner, much faster Than any of these athletes would again I'll be the first to admit that I get discouraged much too easily we must ask the Lord to change our hearts on how we view ministry we need to repent and be transformed surely with God on our side working through us we can persevere surely we can see this task through When the school year rolls around and you're wondering whether or not you should help teach Sunday school again, you're wondering whether you should sign up to help in the nursery or show up on Wednesday nights to help at Awana or volunteer at the mission or or wherever you might typically serve. When you hear of a need within the church, when, when you have an opportunity to share the gospel with an unbeliever, I encourage you To reflect on this scripture. Yes. It's hard. Yes. You'll be tired. No. Not everyone will respond. You might not see any results. Ever. There might not be any personal benefit. And yeah. You might be too busy. And have better things to do with your time. But your call as a Christian. Is to persevere. This ministry matters. Our message And our work matter. Do not lose heart, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us your word. And we are able to give it to one another. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. Lord, I pray that anything I may have said that um, was contrary to your word or, or not, what you wanted them to hear would be forgotten, would be overlooked. Lord, you are, um, you are awesome. Your gospel is great. Um, Lord, you are good, and we are not, and we are at your mercy.